0: Welcome to Nuances Beyond First Impressions with the Asian Diaspora, a podcast where we hold space for nuanced discussions about culture, food, race, gender, equity, and more. I am Lynn Lee, a Californian with Chinese Mauritian roots, and my co-host is Ariadne Mila, a Filipino-American based in Texas. Every week, we bring on a guest from the diverse API community to talk about their experience, their careers, their struggles, and their triumphs. We hope that through their personal stories, we can provide more depth and complexity to the API experience that is often portrayed in the media.
1: Did you know that until 1952, federal policy barred immigrants of Asian descent from becoming U.S. citizens and having the right to vote? If you're a citizen of California, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, or South Dakota, remember to exercise your right to vote on June 7th. In California, Mississippi, and New Jersey, your mail-in ballots have to be postmarked by June 7th. In Montana, New Mexico, and South Dakota, your ballots will have to have been postmarked and received on June 7th. And in Iowa, your mail-in ballots have to be postmarked by June 6th. Check fvap.gov to find more voting information. Before we get into our conversation with Josh, we would like to take a second to define a few terms that come up throughout the conversation. The first is Tagalog and Ilocano. These are languages spoken in the Philippines, There are over 100 distinct languages spoken in the Philippines, most of which are not mutually intelligible. The next term is Tinikling. This is a traditional Philippine folk dance which originated during the Spanish colonial era. The dance involves two people beating, tapping, and sliding bamboo poles on the ground and against each other in coordination with one or more dancers who step over and in between the poles in a dance. Trust me, you do not want to get your foot clipped by the two bamboo poles. It is no fun. And without further ado... Let's get into our interview with Josh. This week's guest is Josh Tekolongon, better known on Instagram as Semeligay. Originally hailing from Vancouver, Canada, Josh studied science in university before dropping everything to study wine and flavor. Excited by the future of food and beverage, he co-founded Endless West in San Francisco and is an avid lover of flavor experimentation, especially through a queer and Filipino lens. Through videos and writing, Josh is dedicated to making the wine world inclusive, most recently through a beverage and culture zine called Botelia, by LGBTQ plus folks and BIPOC coming
0: later this year. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Tell us a bit about your background, what it was like growing up Filipino in Vancouver and how that brought you to here.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's so funny. Sometimes life is so fast paced that I have to ask myself if I told myself 10-15 years ago that this is where I would be now, like, I probably would not have believed my future self. But I grew up in Vancouver, Canada to, of course, a Filipino family. I, I had a very typical Filipino family, lots of cousins, lots of aunts, lots of uncles. And... I was the one in the family who was. It sounds like I'm patting myself on the back here, but I promise I'm not. But like, I was the smart one. Every time it would be Christmas time, all the cousins would get race cars and stuff. But one time, when everybody got race cars, I got a calculator with games on it. So I was kind of like, I know you're trying to encourage me to be more scholarly by getting me a calculator with games on it. All that to say, I had this expectation in the family to, you know, the one to become the doctor or the one to have these lofty goals and. Of course, growing up, I very stereotypically, in some sense, was put into piano lessons, was put into these programs and stuff. And eventually I went to a school for science with the hopes of, I have no idea. Like When I was little, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be maybe an engineer. Maybe my goals were a little bit too lofty in a sense that I didn't know if I could handle the schoolwork, but I was distracted by wine in some sense in, in college. I don't know if it was because I just was super curious about it or because it didn't seem like I was in a place where I fit in and everybody was drinking beer. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll study wine as some way of rejecting that. But I ended up really falling in love with wine because it seemed like I was changing majors every couple of months and wine had something that seemed to be for everyone. So it had science, which is what I was studying. It had culture, languages and gastronomy. And at the same time, it was something that you could enjoy with people. So I really liked that it was something that anybody can connect to and it was a way for me to connect to everything at the same time so i ended up as you were saying dropping everything to study wine and spirits much to the slight chagrin of my my parents but they were the type of people who trusted that i would find some way to be successful in it anyways Mm -hmm. so that was cool so i worked in every aspect of the industry until 2016 where i moved to san francisco to co-found a company called Endless West. I was contacted by two other people who also went to the University of British Columbia. Ironically, we didn't know each other when we attended school, but we got connected to each other after the fact. They were here already in the Bay Area doing a startup to do with stem cells randomly enough, and then we pivoted to doing things in wine and spirits. So we created Endless West, where we basically make beverages in a lab. And the reason why we do that is to emit fewer carbon emissions, use less water, and be able to create something overnight instead of waiting years and that's still going on now but i took a step back at the onset of covid to pursue other projects in the earlier part of the pandemic i did a lot of wine videos and i really wanted to speak to queer audiences and other audiences that aren't necessarily involved in the world of wine and spirits for example like the world that i'm in like the filipino world And as you were mentioning, I'm doing that now mainly as a magazine called Botellia that I'm starting later this year. I'm super excited by the stuff that's coming out. I'm I'm just excited to share it with everybody.
0: So cool. I never really thought about it that much. But yeah, it's art and science and food and people. What more can you ask? (laughs) Yeah,
2: and it's funny because at the beginning, I was like, yeah, it's all about people and everybody to it. But then working more and more into it, I'm like, wait, but it's not accessible to everybody. And now I want to return back to the reason why I fell in love with it and really make sure that I'm doing my best to connect with different audiences about it.
0: When did you start having an interest in wine at all? Did your family have wine at home or did you start experimenting when you were in college? How did that work?
2: Wine wasn't really a thing in my household. Sometimes my dad would have a, we call it plunk. It's basically like wine that you don't drink for the flavor. It's just wine that you have just to sip on and it's very cheap. My household was mainly beer, sometimes spirits, but very typical Filipino family, A beer was around a lot. And in terms of wine, A lot of people in the industry have an aha wine or a wine that kind of sets up a bulb in the back of their brain being like, oh, this is why I like wine. This is so cool. I didn't realize wine could be like that, but I didn't really have that at the beginning. On my 19th birthday, one of my best friends at the time got me this bottle of Syrah from British Columbia and I thought it would be a great time to start a wine journal I'm going to really be mindful of what I'm drinking because wine is so fancy or whatever and I I like the ritual of it opening the bottle with the corkscrew and pouring it into maybe in a poorly lit room so it feels like the vibes you know what I mean I did a whole thing where I, I researched how to taste wine And I looked at the color, I gave it a smell. I'm like, okay, I think I smell campfire, red fruit. I didn't really know how to describe it back then. And I wrote, okay, it's dry, the tannins are rough. And I wrote as much as I can. And then I looked up the grape later and I'm like, oh, this grape Syrah, apparently it tends to have these smoky, spicy flavors. And I looked at my note, it said campfire. I'm like, oh, maybe wine isn't bullshit. Maybe there's something behind it. It was just slow curiosity that snowballed and snowballed until I was deep into the curiosity of it all, and that's why I started going into it, and because it was something that wasn't necessarily in the culture of my family. And now that I'm thinking about it, perhaps it was like a rejection. I wanted to separate myself from my family or something, and and kind of dive into this thing that was very set into the Western world, for example, or maybe it was the desire of bridging the two. Who knows? But yeah, it was something that was completely new to me. One thing that's funny is that there are a lot of wine people. If you read how they got into wine, especially ones who are white. Sometimes their bio starts off with, oh, my first exposure Mm -hmm. to wine was when I was four years old and my grandfather gave me a spoonful of wine diluted with water or whatever. (laughs) And I'm like, I never had that. I never grew up in a a household of wines. It was just total curiosity and wondering how to combine wine with other parts of my life.
0: One of the first things I saw from you was a post about pairing Filipino food with wine. And you talked a little bit about how Asian cuisine is not really considered really when people are doing wine pairings. And that really piqued my interest because Mm -hmm. I grew up in Mauritius, which is a tiny tropical island. And our influence is Chinese food, Indian food, African food, some French food. And obviously there's no wine pairing for that. I think most Asian households, we didn't grow up with this culture of drinking and appreciating wines. We would buy bottles of wine when we have people over, maybe, but we didn't really know much about it. Then after I moved to California, I started getting really interested in wine and I started trying different wines and trying to figure out what I like. And I couldn't find anything to help me figure out what wine is going to go with my chicken biryani. I don't know. (laughs) So I think it's really cool that you're starting to do that. And I would assume that's going to be a big part of what you do with your magazine, right?
2: Absolutely. Just before I hopped on with you folks, I was actually working on that piece that I'm going to release. I have so much to say that I have to break it up between different issues because at first I wanted to just focus on flavors that typical Western or European cuisines don't have and trying to fit that into what that means for the world of wine or beverages in general. But at the same time, it's impossible not to look at why that happens from a political or social aspect as well, right? The way that we talk about food and wine in different cultures really reflects how we treat and view these cultures at a larger scale as well. Food is a window into culture, and sometimes we don't often see it like that. I think it's hard to, sometimes we like to separate food and culture and to not view one as connected to the other. I know that sounds really weird, but by pairing wine with different foods and being able to pay attention to the nuances and the histories behind these different dishes, I think that is really paying respect to culture. Mm-hmm. And by doing the opposite, the example I use all the time is historically, people have been like pair off dry Riesling with Asian food. But what does that mean, Asian food? And by being very general about Asian food in that sense, mm-hmm. I don't think that we're paying enough respect to asian food and the different nuances that asian food has
1: absolutely yeah it's similar to what we talk about with asians not being a monolith we're not all the same and i get this i'm filipino as well i had east asian friends celebrating lunar new year i'd never celebrated that and lumping everything under this one umbrella of asian food or asian people just
0: doesn't pay respect to the individual cultures not to mention that they don't taste anything like each other. I mean, you, you look at exactly. Indian food and Chinese food, they're very different.
2: Exactly. And even further than that, even within the Philippines or within China, I was looking at this map of different Chinese foods divided from the Northwest. I was like, oh my God, that's so interesting to me. I wonder how different flavors manifest in different foods and same thing with the Philippines. In the South, you have more turmeric and more certain flavor, coconut, and even saying Filipino food is sometimes broad and you need to even delve even further, which is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Fascinating.
1: Even the term Filipino is so broad because I have Filipino friends who don't speak Tagalog, or they do speak Tagalog, but they speak Ilocano or Visayan or something else. And it's just so many ethnicities, so many different groups under that one word, which isn't even our word.
2: Right.
0: One thing that I had learned recently through my husband, he reads a lot of books and we always talk about what books we're reading at the dinner table. One of the interesting stories was some cuisines were developed top down from the rich people, like in France. The French cuisine came from royalty and the very rich. But if you look at, for example, Italian cuisine and Chinese cuisine, it was the opposite. Chinese cuisine and Italian cuisine came from the poor people. That's what developed the culture around the food and how it tastes today. So I wonder if there's a similar thing with wine. Is it different based on the different regions that you've studied?
2: That's really fascinating to me. And that's actually very interesting uh, that you bring that up, because with wine, I can definitely see it in both ways. So back probably centuries ago, there's definitely a lot of top-down. The reason why the UK, definitely along with French people, they're seen as the stereotype, I think, of somebody from London who goes to a wine tasting. The reason why they're such a hub of wine culture is because back then, they were basically the ones to drive what was popular in terms of the wine world. That's exactly why back then, port from Portugal became so popular, because their palettes demanded that style, and they therefore imported that style. I do think of other places, maybe, I might need to fact check this, but back then, maybe a central, southern Italy, where a lot of places grew just what they had around them and that's how they started before being driven by the market and and popularity. So that's very interesting to see those two worlds in in the wine world collide as well, top up and bottom. Yeah. Yeah.
0: For somebody who loves Asian food and loves wine and they want to try and do better with their pairings, what would you recommend they try? How do you pair wine with Filipino food or Asian foods in general? Yeah.
2: First of all, I know Asian food and, and Filipino food are broad categories, but I would definitely say don't be afraid to throw the rule book out the window and explain Experiment. At the end of the day, you're going to have food and wine, and even finding out that something doesn't work together is still adds to your knowledge, and at the end of the day, you can still drink it and, and eat your meal, but definitely explore. If I were to dive a little bit deeper into more specifics, for Filipino food, although it's very hard to generalize, there are a lot of flavors, I think, that are sour and piercing mm-hmm. and, for lack of a better term, funky. And Western or common wine pairings dictate that you have to pair wine that's as acidic or more acidic than the dish you're pairing it with. So I did this experiment tasting nine different flavors in Filipino cuisine with 13 different wines and basically trying all the combinations. It was a long day, but it was also very informative. To that wine pairing rule where you have to pair a wine that's more acidic, I learned that wasn't necessarily the best thing to do because. Sometimes pairing acidic with acidic is like nails on a chalkboard, like it's too high-pitched. So what I did was I paired my adobo sauce, it's basically mainly cane vinegar and soy sauce, and it paired really well with a low-acid oaked chardonnay from California. And the reason why it worked was because it was like you had the high-pitched violin notes of the acid of the soy sauce and the vinegar, and... I also had this base note of the Chardonnay. They were working together in tandem and they were giving room for each other to speak, basically. So that was really cool. And then I had a friend in Arkansas. I think he lives in Little Rock and he said, hey, I'm making adobo for the first time and I'm sharing it with my friends. What should I do? And of course, I knew that Chardonnay would work, but I was afraid that it wouldn't work for somebody else for some reason, because I'm anxious like that. (laughs) But I said, oh, try this out. See if it works. And then he tried it, and he was like, yeah, it really worked. The Chardonnay made the adobo taste more adobo-y, if that makes sense. Like, it emphasized the flavor.
1: Interesting. Yeah,
2: so that was really cool. Sometimes the rules work. So there's this one other dish I would call the opposite. So it's called piaparan monok, and that comes from the south of the Philippines. And it's basically this chicken that uses fish sauce, coconut, turmeric, and it's more reminiscent of all the cultures surrounding the southern Philippines. And it went really well with a Gewirchtraminer, Alsatian Gewürztraminer more specifically from northeastern France. And it was the opposite because the elements in that wine matched the elements in the dish. The creaminess of the wine matched the coconut of the dish. The earthiness and the florality of the wine worked with the turmeric of the dish. And Instead of being like a violin and a cello, it was kind of like a duet. They were finishing each other's sentences, for lack of a better term. So there's a lot of rules that the Western world in terms of wine likes to impose. But I guess my very broad and long-winded answer is to just experiment and try things that are new. Maybe one thing that you can do is Google wine pairings and then do the complete opposite. Like that, that'll be fun, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, just experiment and kind of be open, I guess, is my answer to that.
0: I love it. I love that. I'm going to try, try this because Ari gave me yeah. a recipe to try making adobo. So I'm going to try that and I'm going to get a Chardonnay. Awesome. Yeah. Okay.
1: And I try, I've never had adobo with wine. I need to try that.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, yeah. I'm curious. It's so interesting because you mentioned that manok dish from the South. I've never heard of that dish and I'm Filipino. It's just, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. This.
2: It is very interesting. And I learned about it from a book called I am a Filipino by Nicole Ponseca. Okay. That is probably one of my favorite Filipino cookbooks because it gives a little bit of historical context for each dish and it separates each chapter by, oh, these are the dishes that were more Chinese-influenced versus Spanish and what have you. And that's how I discovered that dish. My partner actually loved it so much that he cooked it for his family back in Puerto Rico. And they loved it because with Puerto Rico, we shared some influences too because they have certain elements in that dish that they really liked. And I'm like, oh, this is such a mind-blowing moment because it was something that we were were able to share with them and, and they loved it. So
0: that's so cool.
2: But yeah, I definitely that I love that dish. It's great.
0: Yeah. I'm gonna have to try it. I'm gonna have to look into it. How has your experience been getting into the wine industry? Because it's not known for its diversity. Being Asian, being gay, did you have any sort of pushback? Was it subtle? Was it overt? What was that like?
2: No, for sure. It was definitely hard at the beginning because just in the context of who's in the wine industry, I felt a little bit alone. Everybody was definitely white, cis, male, and it was very intimidating at first. I, I had moments where people implicitly or explicitly told me that I couldn't do what I wanted to do, or people would seek other people who didn't look like me, but I had more experience in the context of a wine shop or something. So it's definitely hard to navigate that world, especially since something like starting a company in the space as well making wine and spirits in the lab you can imagine sounds very scary and new and maybe anti-tradition which is not what we're about at all we're definitely all about uh newness and creating something new in this space but being somebody who is already other having all those eyes and fingers pointed in our direction was just another layer of oh my goodness like how do I handle this But having written blog posts, done videos on my experience in the wine industry and releasing videos of drinks in the gay context, I think that it's really important to know that you're there to please people who connect to you and to not try to please people who aren't on your side. All that to say, it's definitely been very tough. But one of the things I did during quarantine was connect with a lot of people online. And it was great to know that there were people around the world who were can connect with the fact that I'm another gay Asian person that they could connect to, I guess.
0: Yeah. I I love your videos, by the way. They're hilarious. I don't know that much about wine. After I moved to California, I'm like, okay, there's a lot of wine around here. I should probably try some and get to know a little bit about wine. I do like it, but it is a little intimidating.
2: (laughs) Yeah, for sure.
0: I love that you are taking something that is upscale and snobby sometimes and you're breaking it down and you're making it fun and you're making it accessible to everybody. And at the same time, you just have this amazing personality. It's so much fun watching your videos.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's thank you so much. That means a lot. But um, yeah, it's through. So this is my 10th year in wine and, and spirits. But I recall those moments where I'm going for like a wine certification and I'm memorizing the labels and what has to be on the wine label for it to be aged for that amount of time and memorizing sugar levels to be able to label blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, I have to remember that wine is meant to be for fun. And if I'm not having fun and if other people are not having fun, then we are losing the point of wine. And we have a lot of people who are obsessed with memorizing facts and regions and all this and that. I'm like, that's honestly, that's great, because I also find satisfaction from doing those things. But at the end of the day, I want people to have fun with it and I want people to be included.
0: Yeah. How has your experience been different in Canada versus the U.S.? Was that a big culture shock? Because I was in Toronto for a while and then I moved to the U.S. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are.
2: Yeah, definitely. I was born and raised in Vancouver and then I moved to San Francisco in 2016. I actually thought it was a really nice change for me because I I like to call San Francisco Vancouver's more wilder cousin. I think San Francisco, it was a really good place to be able to get to know my queer self and to get to know other Filipinos, California being a great place where Filipinos have moved. And being back in Vancouver and living with my parents, there wasn't really much space for me to be my best self, I feel. And I think that One of the greatest things was that I was able to, through struggle and other things, to get to know myself better. It wasn't that big of a culture shock, but by virtue of being able to blossom on my own, I think that was really the biggest change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There
2: is this kind of thought that a lot of Filipino parents have where they want you to stay home until the longest amount possible. And free rent would be fantastic, but... I think that I really grew as an individual and I got to know uh, a lot about myself for sure from that change. Yeah,
1: yeah that's awesome. Thank you. It's funny, when you go to California, Asians I know and Filipinos that I know who grew up in the Bay Area or in Southern California, they didn't feel as othered or they found a sense of community because of the large Asian population there. And whenever I would go to the Bay Area, I could go to any place and find Filipino food and Filipino restaurants and in Austin, I think there's only one that I know of and it closed down during COVID, so now I don't even have that. But it's so interesting to hear about the experiences of Filipinos and other AAPI folks in California versus other parts of the U.S. where even in some place like Austin, I feel like I didn't see a lot of representation. A lot of the Filipinos I know were Filipinos I grew up with that also moved to Austin but I didn't meet Filipinos in Austin so it's interesting hearing about depending on where you are in the U.S. you find that sense of community or you don't.
2: It's so funny on that note actually like I definitely had a Filipino community back in Vancouver because maybe 90-95% of my extended family lives there but Moving to the Bay Area, there was a particular change that shocked me in a good way, and that was the fact that there were a lot of proud Filipinos here who were my age and teenagers. I don't know why back home in Vancouver, Filipinoness wasn't as embraced. Like, for example, my parents didn't teach me Tagalog. It made me so happy to see everybody have a stronger and big community, large in part because I know that the diaspora is larger here compared to Vancouver, but I was like, wow, this is fantastic. I wish I had celebrated my Filipinoness a little bit more when I was younger. So that was definitely an interesting change, but yeah, i, I love to see it.
1: Yeah, me too. I-, I don't think I didn't have that sense of pride in being Filipino because I did grow up in a pretty solid Filipino community, but there are things that I missed out on that I wish that I had, it's like seeing my culture more ubiquitous. I have a lot of cousins who didn't learn Tagalog, and there's a balance between assimilating but still retaining your Filipinoness and celebrating it, and I think When they grew up in the Northeast and they were the token brown person there and everybody else was white, it was almost like they went too much in one direction where they assimilated, they didn't speak Tagalog, and they essentially were Filipino on the outside, but very Americanized on the inside.
2: Yeah, I totally relate to that as well. I always have to remind myself that in my opinion, there's no one way to be Filipino. And I tell myself and my friends who are Filipino and who do live in other spaces, just because we don't know the language doesn't mean that we're any less Filipino than somebody else. Yeah, But yeah, it, it's so funny. I see the teenagers practicing their tinikling the dance yeah. with the poles. And I'm like, I, I, wish, I wish I could do that. That's so fun. I want to do that before I lose my knees. Like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but if anything, I'm glad that people are saying, you know what, I didn't participate with this when I was younger. And now I'm going to do my research and I'm going to do my deep dive into Filipino culture and mm-hmm. rediscover where I came from.
1: Yeah. I love seeing that, and I'm glad that there are other people, adult Filipino diaspora folks, who are wanting to do the deep dive and rediscover that part of their identity. For sure.
0: You mentioned that you didn't learn Tagalog. Do your parents speak English with you at home and with each other? Is that everybody's first language in your family?
2: Yeah, my parents mainly spoke English. They still threw around some Filipino phrases that I still got to know. But basically, they discouraged us learning Tagalog because they wanted us to place more emphasis on becoming fluent in English. Mm That being said, when they were talking to their brothers or sisters or other people in the family who weren't people my age, they would still speak Tagalog. My mom also knows Ilocano, and so I would hear some of that as well. But now, maybe for a couple of years now, I've been trying to study Tagalog for at least 5-10 minutes a day. I have flashcards, and I've done some listening lessons as well. It's really interesting. There was this lesson that one French or Spanish teacher in high school taught me. And it, it came back to me. She said, vocabulary is the first thing you forget after you stop studying a language. What sticks with you is the grammar.
0: Mm.
2: And when I was studying Tagalog, the grammar for some reason came much more naturally to me than I expected because the rhythm from what you hear when you're little, it sticks with you. So just being around the language was really helpful to just learning language. And I was studying this one sentence, and months later, I was like, oh, this sounds like this, which is what my mom always said to me, oh, that's where that came from. And, and, and the, <laughs> the sentence was, it was like an idiom, it was something like, you're hard-headed in Tagalog. ulo. Yes, yes, exactly. It took me months to be like, oh, wait, why does this sound so familiar? Oh, it's because my mom said that to me all the time. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, oh my God, this is so weird. I'm looking at this sentence for months, and now I'm like, that's why it's familiar to me. It's it's definitely a, a journey because a lot of the words don't share similarities in other languages. For example, if you look at French and Spanish, there's lots of similarities, but it's a way to reconnect with your culture and learn more about yourself through the language.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. I never thought about that but now that you mentioned the thing about grammar. My family is uh, of Chinese descent but the the language they speak is Hakka. We didn't learn to speak Hakka but my mom and my grandma when they're speaking sometimes they'll throw in Hakka words in there and I did take Mandarin for a little bit in elementary school and that just occurred to me right now that it it was easier because I had heard haka which is not the same as Mandarin but it's close and that's why the sentence structure made sense to me (laughs) yeah that's cool
2: it's yeah the the mind works in very interesting ways that we don't expect until we, we come across things like these
0: yeah yeah that's really cool You mentioned that your family wasn't really into wine before. Are they more into wine now? Are they experimenting more since you're in the wine industry or? Yeah,
2: there's this one wine movie called Somme, and it's about the Court of Master Sommeliers. They're one of the two biggest wine institutions where you can get certifications. And although the institution has come under fire over particular controversies in the particular years, it's still a very interesting film to see. It basically follows a couple of Master Sommelier candidates who go through the rigorous process of studying wine with the flashcards and the blind tastings and studying for the service exam as well. And that was the movie that convinced my parents that wine is actually hard work and is a good thing to get into, which is really funny. And yeah, since then, I've shared wine with them. I've, I've taught them about particular flavors for other reasons. I haven't talked to them in a couple of years, but... They have the capacity now to enjoy more flavors and seeing it from a distance is still cool to see. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I wanted to touch a little bit on, and we don't have to go into it if you don't want to, but your experience being part of the LGBTQ community and in the Asian diaspora. Because my experience with AAPI community is that a lot of the older generations are still very uncomfortable or very new to the idea. What was that like for you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm very happy to talk about that. I'm part of a group on Facebook. I've muted it now because it's a mess, but it's called Subtle Asian Traits.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. I have thoughts on that group.
2: <laughs> right, right. And then there's I have the umbrella of there's so many different uh, ones now, but you have a subtle Filipino trait, which is a whole other thing. And now I'm also in one called subtle queer Asian traits. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, this is a, a less chaotic group, I guess. It's chaotic in its own sense. But all that to say, I often look at this group and and me right now, I feel like I'm in a place where I don't know if I'm the best self, but I feel like I am the best self that I've been so far. And I look at these people in this group who are going on their own journeys And I have to remember that it's important to connect with these people and that I was in their place at one point. And the reason I mentioned that is because growing up, it was definitely very hard. For example, my mom, one of her best friends was gay. But when I came out to her, she was taken aback by it. And so I was like, where's that disconnect here? Because I thought you were cool with it because one of your best friends was openly gay. Mm -hmm. And it was not as smooth as a lot of my other friends who are not from these Asian cultures. So every time I I don't, I'm not saying this in a bad way because I know that people have their own connections to these particular parts of media or these movies. But every time another story about a white teenager who comes out, who's embraced by their family, I'm like, I, I never had that. Where's the story about the Asian that's coming out, right? Yeah so it was definitely hard i came out to my friends in high school and they were of course much more willing to embrace that part of myself but there was definitely a part of myself that i felt like i couldn't express while living at home i'm here now in san francisco but i look back at groups like the subtle queer asian traits and i'm like oh i want to put more of what i do out into the world connect one in spirits world to being queer and being Filipino because other people need to see that and other people need to be able to connect with that, especially in the world of beverages where it's purportedly for everybody. I need to emphasize that part of myself and use that as a way to almost communicate to my past self.
0: Yeah, yeah definitely. As you said, the beverage industry is supposed to be for everyone, but a lot of people are just an afterthought in that industry. Exactly. And that's what we all love about your content, is that you're bringing all of that back and making it, taking it back to the people.
2: (laughs) Thank you, thank you.
0: Yeah. What are some things that you think the wine industry could do to become more inclusive?
2: That's a really good question, because oftentimes the beverage industry and people, they talk about diversity. And I see this in a lot of industries, not just the beverage industry, but when they say, Diversity, let me put it this way. Let's say you have the image of a group of people who are being snobs and they're being exclusive around the table um, and they're drinking wine. A lot of people think that diversity is enough when you just switch those people out or people with a different skin color or, or gender, for example. Yeah. And although that is adding to the diversity, I think that we need to take down the image of that snobbery. And I think diversity means diversity in people, but it also means diversity in how we talk about wine in the foods that we pair with wine, in which situations we enjoy wine. I understand that wine has grown large in part because of its image of exclusivity. But I think now is the time where we need to rip that apart and really change the way we interact with it. And how that looks is we're definitely seeing that a lot now. We have a lot of scholarships going out to people of color, to queer people and who want to learn more about wine in the industry. We're seeing a lot of different events joining wine with other particular foods and cultures, which I really like. But I definitely want to see wine being... I don't even know how to define it, but I, for, this is an example. Like, this is not what the article is, but it's, for example, it's, all oh, wine's to pair with foreplay or something. You're like, I want it to be not this place that you have to be so proper, is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say, in order yeah. to enjoy it. It's, things like that are what the industry needs and should be going towards.
1: I love that. It's interesting that their whole brand was exclusion, and now people, they're not feeling that anymore. So I love when spaces become more inclusive and when industries are expanding to be more inclusive, because I don't think people care for exclusivity anymore either.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And I really hope that's the way that it moves in the wine world, because... I feel like we've been inching towards that kind of diversity and inclusion, but I definitely don't think it's enough and I I don't think that we're really there yet. That's definitely one of my bigger hopes for this industry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So how many, how big, because I have a ton of cousins, I don't even know half of them and there's three Marias. So how was all of that growing up? Did you do the Filipino parties with the karaoke machine and all that?
2: Oh, of course. That is definitely something that I miss now that I don't live around a family, is those mm-hmm. big Filipino families where you have the buffet of food where you go <laughs> there and you come back. And that is definitely something that I miss and I maybe sometimes took for granted. But yeah, it was always lots of fun, lots of different cousins, lots of different of I've had maybe, top of my head, somewhere 25 to 30 uh, first cousins. Yeah. <laughs> of course, you know how it's always huge family gatherings and... The karaoke machine, for sure. I, I wish I, I had more of that, but life goes on, and maybe I'll find another Filipino crew here I'll later on, and we'll have more Filipino parties once uh, COVID settles down a little bit more. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how I've been in Filipino parties where I don't know any of the people here. It's just a Filipino party with a bunch of Filipinos that I don't know, but it's the same, and everything's familiar. There's the lumpia, there's the spaghetti, the lechon, and there's a car- and it's just so funny how it's even if you don't know the people, like it still feels. Familiar
2: in a way? Totally. Oh my goodness. I remember speaking of the food in Filipino parties, I can't. Some of my cousins and I were such brats when we were were little. We were like, oh my God, Filipino food again. <laughs> like that And I, I felt bad because one time we were such brats and we made our parents order us pizza too. But now, oh my God, I crave all the foods from those parties that I can't yeah. find unless I go to a little bit further out. Last weekend, I took my partner to Jollibee for the first time in Daly City. And oh my goodness! Even though it's fast food palabok, this is my first time eating palabok in years. This is so satisfying. <laughs> but back in the Filipino parties, I'm like, palabok again. Like I'm not gonna. <laughs> and it's it's so funny how now I fully crave these foods.
1: Yeah, I was the same way. My dad would make like sinigang or something for dinner, and I'd be like, oh again, I just want pizza. But now <laughs> I'm like, damn, I, I don't know how to make
0: sinigang, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I know, same. and it's like, I remember my mom using those, like, like flavor packets, and now I need to, I don't know where to get these. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Before we let you go, we have five rapid-fire questions. These are just a simple answer. You don't need to explain anything. just one word, one phrase answer. And then after that, we'll let everybody know where they can find you and all the links and all that. Ari, do you want to do the honors? What's an Asian food that you should like but don't?
2: oh my god this is i know this is supposed to be rapid fire but i have oh my god an asian food that i'm supposed to like but okay you're gonna roast me for this one and i just found my my like perfect combination that i do but i'm gonna say boba
1: oh oh my god i
2: I feel i'm blushing (laughs) saying that because i feel like that's so sacrilegious (laughs) For what it's worth, in high school, I used to drink boba or bubble tea several times a week. So I definitely, I was a big boba person in the past, but now less so. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to put that.
1: No judgment. I've met Asians who don't like boba. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're still Asian, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the next one is, what's an Asian food that you'll never get tired of?
2: Fried rice. It can be Thai fried rice, some more traditional styles, Filipino fried rice. There's something about fried rice. I will always, I can eat it by itself. Love fried rice.
1: Yeah, same here. Okay, and what is your desert island Asian food and wine pairing?
2: oh good question i have two i guess i would say definitely three i guess if we talk about chardonnay and adobo that's definitely one of them the other one was the other one i mentioned which was Pia paran manok and the Demeanor from Alsace, and then I'm going to add another one on there, which is lumpia and champagne or sparkling wine, uh, because the, the crispiness matches with the bubbles, and the acidity of the champagne or sparkling wine cleanses the palate from the the oil. I'm um, so they play oh, hand. Cool.
1: I'm going to have to try that too. I'm going to have to try all those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, and let's see. I've got. What is the most amazing wine and Asian food pairing you've had?
2: Ooh, yeah. So I would definitely say the ones I already mentioned for sure. But if I were to add another one on there, I guess this is a kind of homage to where my mom comes from. So she's from Sur in the north of the Philippines, where they have a lot of vegetable dishes. And so um, one of the ones that I grew to love now, and I didn't really like back then, was is a dish called binakbet, which is basically vegetables that are stewed and steamed with lagoong, which is a shrimp or yeah. fish paste. Uh, and because it has that saltiness to it and that slight funk to it, it pairs well with a wine called Fino Sherry, which comes from the southwest of Spain. But it has a similar subtle funk to it and nuttiness, but also a yeastiness to it. And I feel like both of the dishes have their own subtleties and they kind of mesh well together because they're both funky. So I would probably say that's definitely one of the Asian kind of food pairings that was like, wow, these are together.
1: That's so cool. I love I, I, yeah. I eat bagoong with kare kare, and my mom would eat it with mangoes because she liked the sweetness of the mango plus the saltiness of the bagoong bago with mangoes. And I like bagoong with mangoes too.
2: Oh, just like really quickly, as you mentioned bagoong, well, this is not necessarily a pairing, but one of the things that blew my mind was I made. So there's an Italian dish called pasta puttanesca, which is basically, I don't know all the ingredients, but it basically uses noodles with anchovy paste and all of these things, but I replaced the anchovies with bagoong and it worked really well. Oh so I, I definitely try that. Yeah.
1: Oh gosh, I will. Yeah. That that makes sense too, that it would exactly. similar. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Okay. And my last question, most underrated and most overrated wine?
2: Ooh, good question. Definitely overrated wine. And I say this with love and respect because I think everybody deserves their own preferences. And I don't think that... I'm not going to shame anybody for liking particular type of wine, but I definitely think that big red wines, sometimes from California, that are just like a big blanket on the mouth but don't have much complexity to them. Not to say that I won't enjoy these wines, but I think that sometimes looking for other styles of wine that are similar but have different nuances to them are definitely worth looking for. So I know that was a broad category, but I would say that. An underrated wine, oh man, I could go on and on. Uh, definitely regions that aren't focused on as much. So for example, South African wines, I think, Mm. are a category worth looking for. I would say certain grapes are underrated sometimes uh, certain regions. There's a particular grape called Chenin Blanc that is grown in France that is very popular with sommeliers, but I think that definitely even non-wine people should definitely look for. And just because I'm from there, I would definitely say wines from British Columbia are underrated. They're hard to find on a global scale, but if you do see them, I suggest trying out a couple bottles because we have a unique signature uh, when it comes to wine profiles i
0: actually have not yeah. tried a bc bottle i'm gonna have to look for one i don't think i have definitely yeah mm-hmm. it's not very common here you'd have to order it online
2: yeah sometimes online and in san francisco here we're a wine hub so i guess we're bound to see them sometimes in terms of bc one time i saw one at the wine shop down the street and i was like whoa i didn't realize you could find bc wine because canada is a little bit tricky with exporting and taxes and stuff but if you happen to come across any BC wines, look out for the whites and the sparklings. And if you see any reds, definitely my favorites are wines made from a grape called Syrah, for sure. I love Syrah.
0: Awesome. Okay. I'm going to have to go look that up. Yeah. Now. I'm going to look <laughs> up. A BC
2: bottle. And if, if either of you have any like questions about BC wines or wine in general, I'm, I'm always happy to answer. Just drop something in the email or DM. And yeah. <laughs>
0: Thanks all right thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us this was so much fun i hope you had fun
2: (laughs) i had lots of fun yeah
0: yeah thank you so much before we let you go let people know where they can find you and just all your links
2: yeah absolutely so i'm on uh, mainly on instagram but i also do tiktok my handle is at Gay, which is like Somalier, but with uh, gay at the end. And I am releasing a magazine called Botelia later this year. So on Instagram, we're at readbotelia. And I'm in the process of setting other links up. But at the moment, that's where you can mainly find me. Oh, also my blog at joshlikeswine.com or somaligay.com. And you can also find my personal website and my other projects at joshdecalongan.com.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Josh. We had a great time chatting with you.
2: Of course. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: Thanks. Here are our takeaways for this week's episode. Number one, wine may be an interesting field for you if you'd love to be working at the intersection of science, art, culture, food, and connecting with people. Number two, winemaking in a lab might sound like heresy, but with California struggling with severe droughts every year, it might be just the innovation that the industry needs. Number three, just as our cultures aren't accurately represented by monolithic terms like Asian, making broad recommendations like Asian food pairs well with dry Riesling is way too simplistic. Even different regions of the same country can have cuisines that are different enough to pair better with different wines. Number 4. The rules of Western wine pairing don't always apply to pairing wine with Asian foods. Sometimes doing the opposite is exactly the right move. Number 5. Diversity is not just about gender or skin color. Diversity in the languages used to describe wine, the foods we pair the wine with, and the occasions where we enjoy wine are also important. Number six, sometimes leaving the comfort of home is the price to pay to freely explore our truest selves. But of course, that does not mean we don't miss aspects of living closer to our family. Number seven, many of us now crave the foods that we used to take for granted as kids. The moms and dads listening, we're sorry rubber brats, but you were right. And finally, not all Asians like boba. We mentioned quite a few Filipino dishes in this episode. Keep listening if you want to hear more about them. If you know someone who would enjoy this episode, we hope you'll share it with them and build on our show to have your own nuanced conversations about the relationships we have with our cultural identities and how they affect us. Adobo is the national dish of the Philippines, which typically includes chicken
1: marinated in a sauce made up of soy sauce, vinegar, garlic, bay leaves, and black peppercorns. Piaparan manok is a Filipino dish consisting of chicken cooked in a coconut milk-based broth with grated coconut, garlic, onions, ginger, turmeric, young wild shallots, labuyo chili, and various vegetables, and spice with palapa. It originates from the Maranao people of Lanao del Sur. Piaparan means shredded coconut in Maranao. Manok is just the Tagalog word for chicken. Lumpia are various types of spring rolls commonly found in the Philippines. They are made of thin, paper-like or crepe-like pastry skin called lumpia wrapper enveloping savory or sweet fillings. It is often served as an appetizer or snack and might be served deep-fried or fresh. Lechon is a whole roast pig dish usually prepared for special occasions and gatherings. Palabok is a Filipino rice noodle dish composed of minced pork, tinapa flakes or smoked fish flakes, and annatto water. The toppings for this dish include shrimp, slices of hard-boiled egg, crushed chicharron, and chopped scallions. This dish is often served with calamansi, which is a Filipino lime. Sinigang this is a Filipino soup or stew with a tamarind base. It is typically composed of meat, vegetables, onions, tomatoes, tamarind, and fish sauce. Pinakbet is an indigenous Filipino dish from the northern regions of the Philippines. Pinakbet is made from mixed vegetables, sauteed in fish or shrimp sauce. And the final term we have is bagoong. This is a Filipino condiment partially or completely made of either fermented fish or krill or shrimp paste with salt. The fermentation process also produces fish sauce known as patis.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation with Josh. We've included some more information in the show notes and please remember to exercise your right to vote. We'll see you next week for another nuanced conversation.